introduction and hello everyone and thank you for you know choosing to spend an afternoon with me uh that's wonderful i hope that you'll find the information informative useful uh in some way and as jessica mentioned if there are any questions that you have i'd be happy to try and address them as best i can at the end of the presentation so um i i'm going to move right into things because i think it's important to to have a chance to discuss issues of fairness with english learners because i know this is a big problem i was talking recently to the uh, National Center for, uh, National Joint Center for Learning Disabilities, I forget the actual title, and they were um, concerned about some of the wording in IDEA and how it expresses particular approaches or conditions and exclusionary variables and so on. And that's something I've been wrestling with for, for at least 25 years. And I, I know that the issue of fairness for English learners is something that is so important because without it and without some attention to it, what happens is that uh, English learners become highly at risk for misidentification of disabilities, placement in special education, incorrect decisional making, diagnostic mistakes, um, all kinds of things that lead to negative outcomes. So I think it's important that you know, we understand why this occurs and what we can do about it to be able to say, hey, there is a way that we can understand what fairness is and how we can achieve it with English learners, even if it's not necessarily the ways that we have thought about doing so in the past. And I think that's something that comes up quite a bit is that we maybe are reliant a little bit too much on inertia and not understanding whether or not the things that we've been doing have actually been successful or not. So I'd like to start with just a quick review of some of the things that people have done to try and address the issue of score validity, test score validity in particular, with English language learners. And all of these methods are things that you probably are very familiar with and have done and are continuing to do even today, such as the use of a translator. In, in some cases, there's just no alternative to using a translator. If you cannot communicate with the individual, you cannot evaluate or test or assess the individual. Communication is an essential part of that process. So having somebody that can communicate with a child is sometimes required. If you can't do it, you need help. But the problem with it, as noble as the idea is that we want to be uh, helpful to the child, we want to give them every opportunity to be able to demonstrate what they can and cannot do, the problem is that using a translator interpreter is a non-standardized procedure. There, there are no norms available that say, here's what you can expect when you use a translator or interpreter. You, you suffer from things like third-party observer effects. You have content that may not even translate properly. So how do you, you know, move that over? For example, phonological processing, you can't translate phonology. There are sounds that don't exist in other languages and sounds in other languages that don't, insist, uh, don't exist in English. So when you violate standardization, when you introduce these other variables, it's basically creating error and to an unknown degree. Without norms, you have no idea of knowing what the psychometric properties of the test are anymore. What is an average uh, performance score? What is the standard deviation? You, you, you have no sense of this. You don't know the standard error of measure. So while it may be necessary to use translators and interpreters, and I'm not against doing so. It really is going to depend on if and when that's necessary and appropriate. But in terms of generating valid test scores by using them, we're really at a loss here, so it's not going to be the answer that we would like. The same thing applies to modified or altered testing. 
And this, by the way, should be distinguished from accommodated testing. And accommodation is generally defined according to the standards as something that does not alter the construct that is being measured by the test. So something that you can change that allows the individual to be able to do what they need to do. So you know, it, it's important to recognize that a modified or altered kind of uh, testing situation is one in which there is a change in the testing process itself, which then can modify the construct that might be measured. So once again, if you do all the kinds of things that usually fall under the rubric of modified or altered testing, including something like testing of the limits where you eliminate or you extend the time constraints, you repeat the questions, even if you're not supposed to, you accept responses in an alternate language, you um, mediate the concept before you move ahead. If, if you do any of these kinds of things, then once again, you're violating the standardization protocol unless the publisher provides you with norms based on that type of administration, which is unlikely that they're going to do that given that a lot of these modifications are, are random and haphazard at best. They're not consistent across people or testing situations. So in doing this, we simply lack the norms again to tell us what the psychometric properties of the test are. We don't know the mean, we don't know the standard deviation, we don't know the standard error of measure, we don't know then what to make of our results, even if the intent is to increase the child's performance. Now, English learners have long been thought, well, we can just move to nonverbal assessment and that will take care of everything. Now, in a way it kind of does, but in another way it doesn't really at all. Nonverbal testing is, is nonverbal, but it's non-language, or I should say it's language reduced because it's not non-language. And what that means is that, again, you cannot give a test to an individual without communicating with them in some way. Now, you may choose to not use an oral language, but if you're using anything such as gestural communication, sign language, then you are using a language to communicate with the child. So you see that nonverbal doesn't mean that there's no language involved. It just simply means that oral language is eliminated and the language effect as much as possible is generally reduced. Part of that, though, comes from limiting the amount of constructs that are being measured. You know, nonverbal skills are things like visual processing, easy to measure nonverbally, some nonverbal fluid reasoning, perhaps, um, some short-term memory, if it's visually oriented. So you see that, that the constructs that are being measured are defined by trying to remove as much reliance on language, as well as some reliance on cultural kinds of issues. But the problem is that will limit the types of abilities that can be measured. You can't measure auditory processing in a nonverbal manner. Likewise, you can't measure comprehension um, or uh, crystallized intelligence, GC, in a non-language manner because GC is language. And I would say more importantly than anything, you know, nonverbal runs away from the measurement of language because that's the central issue in working within the LL. It's a language issue, so let's just avoid that. But language is too important to be avoided. It correlates too highly with many other indices of success, academic outcomes, general ability, language development, to be able to say, well, it's not important and it's okay if we don't measure it. In fact, in the measurement of English language learners, there's probably nothing more important than the measurement of language. So nonverbal tests aren't gonna give us a completer satisfactory solution either. Now, another approach has, that's long been used has been dominance evaluation, where people say, let me evaluate in which language the child is dominant. Now, while that's useful, because what it would tell you is, if I then test the child in the dominant language, I'm very likely to get higher scores. 
the question is, are you getting developmentally appropriate scores? And that answer is no, not necessarily. And the reason for that is that dominance only tells you which language is better developed. It doesn't tell you that the child's level of development is commensurate with same age peers. And this is a big problem for English learners because because they generally will be learning a second language, let's say that's English, at a point other than from birth. Like myself, I'm an English learner and I didn't start learning English until the age of five. So when I'm six years old, you can't then at that point say, well, okay, let's see, you've learned enough English, now you're becoming more dominant, maybe we should just test you in English. Now, maybe that doesn't happen by six, but by seven, by eight, it surely did. In fact, by seven years of age, I was already telling my parents, I'm not speaking Spanish anymore. So I was clearly preferential and dominant in English by that point, but I only had two years of learning English compared to my peers who had seven years worth of learning English. So it, it isn't a fair assessment, and I think it's, it's a too simplistic approach to be able to say, oh, we can generate valid results this way. I don't think it really works at all. Uh, again, other than to tell you, whichever language is dominant, you're going to get higher scores, but not necessarily average or better scores. And then finally, native language testing. And this, I think, has been uh, probably the area that there's, there's been more interest of as of late, but there are some tremendous limitations. Number one, when we do native language testing, we often validate those types of tests on native speakers, monolingual speakers of that language. But the individuals that we work with in the US invariably are not monolingual, unless you're testing them on the very day they arrive from another country for some reason they will be learning English from the moment they start their residence here in the US. And that means, especially if they're in school, that means that they are bilingual, no longer monolingual speakers of their language. So you can't use monolingual norms. That's not going to provide the comparability that is necessary. Moreover, it, it doesn't control for differences in native language experience as well as uh, education in the native language. In the US, some children may get some native language instruction, others may not. I had none. If you tested me by the time I mentioned, in, uh, by the time I was seven years old in the second grade, my Spanish skills probably would have shown significant deterioration because I did not get any education in my native language. Right? So none of these approaches are really going to be satisfactory. And uh, with respect to the last native language testing, even if that were a solution, there are 350 different languages spoken in the United States, according to the American Community Survey of 2015. That means no one's going to develop 350 different versions of the, the same language test. And it may not even be as important as we think. The specific language that the person speaks may not be the issue. And I'm gonna show you some evidence about this a little bit later. So this is where we have been. This is what has created kind of, you know, the panic among practitioners in the field working with English learners. What do you do? Everything that you may have been taught, everything that has been tried, hasn't exactly led to something that has been useful or which you could say actually demonstrates fairness, particularly when it comes to measurement validity. And so it was in this spirit that the standards were really revised significantly to include fairness as a foundational issue and a foundational chapter. Plus the issues of fairness were spread out across the other chapters as well, so that it was clear that fairness is basically an issue of validity and that it must be something that is attended to at all stages of both test development, construction, and use. So it isn't something that we just have to think about a little bit on the side. It's actually an integral part of what you're required to do when you're working with English learners. In previous versions of the standards, 
most of the emphasis and, and much of it was really related to either specific subgroups that were language-based or were maybe disability-based or had different uh, racial or ethnic backgrounds, which sometimes got equated uh, and conflated with cultural backgrounds, which is really not the same thing. And, and again, that's part of why there were some difficulties. The current versions really has taken that apart and disentangled it to, to uh, a great extent to be able to say, look, here is what fairness actually is and what you must do. And, and I highlighted it for you here in the, in the quote. This is all taken from uh, page 49 of the standards itself, the latest revision. And that is that basically um, when you're working with ELL, ELLs, there must be some kind of response to the test taker characteristics that could interfere with the validity of test score interpretation. And this is something that has been readily misunderstood because we've taken it for granted that what interferes with it is the fact that there's merely a different language. But it's not that simple. Or we've taken um, and accepted the fact that, oh, it must be race or, or ethnicity that is creating the difference. And that's not necessarily true either. And I'm going to show you how that works and why in light of the research that has been laid out. Now, when I first started learning about these issues many, many decades ago, um, I was surprised because I read and read and read that there seemed to be no bias in testing. And I'm thinking, but how can that be? If English learners aren't scoring as well as they should be, then either, either people who were saying a century ago that English learners must be, or bilingual individuals, must be less intelligent than monolingual English speakers, would be right, but I didn't think that was true. And yet, when you look for bias, you didn't find it. Now, part of the reason you didn't find it though was that as traditionally defined, bias relates primarily to issues of reliability. So the items themselves, the content or the novelty of them, the structure, the measurement of the reliability in terms of its accuracy or the error, None of these things actually demonstrate any kind of bias. Neither does the factor structure, the correlation between the, the items and the constructs that are being measured. Even predictive validity, which I know is an aspect of validity, but to me, it's a lot more like reliability anyway, but it, 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 it doesn't change the fundamental meaning of the measurement in any way. If you lack the ability to speak English, then you perform poorly on a test that requires English. And if requiring English skills is part and parcel of what it takes for you to succeed in your job, succeed in your education, then we will predict you will not succeed because you don't have those skills. So there's nothing wrong with the predictive validity. The question is, why don't you have that ability? And this is where things change. Even differential item functioning, which is designed to look at the the task and the item characteristics independent of who's taking the test, all right, still doesn't show any difficulty when we look at it traditionally, partly because what we're looking at interacts with the test in a developmental manner, not in a content or measurement manner. So on the other side, what you see here is the potential bias in working with the LLs comes from the idea and the notion of construct validity. It's very simple. When you give the test, are you measuring what you think you're measuring? So for example, um, you know, if I give you a test that requires you to listen to my instructions and they're lengthy, I may not, excuse me, I may not be measuring what I think I'm measuring, I might be instead measuring your ability to just understand what I said. So that would be an aspect of construct validity. On the other hand, there are times when I am measuring what I think I'm measuring, and yet it still may not be valid when it comes to interpretation. 
This is where diagnostic validity is very, very important because interpretive invalidity follows from not understanding why the performance is low. And if the performance is low and attributed to a disability, then that's interpretive invalidity. But if the interpretation is that although the performance is low, the reason for being low can be explained by external and extrinsic factors, then that cannot be a disability. And I wanna give you an example of what I mean by this because it probably sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. And here's, here's a simple one. I think you're all familiar with this. So let's say we have a block construction kind of task on the left-hand side here. And this is typical of what you might find on many different kinds of tasks. But let's say that although the intent of this particular task is to measure visual processing, such as visualization as a narrow ability, what if the instructions given to a five-year-old child go like this? Assemble these blocks together in the correct manner so they are identical to this illustration. Well, that's pretty fancy language to be asking a five-year-old, and obviously nobody constructing a test would do that. But if it were, and then the individual taking the test, the child has trouble with the block construction task, who do you blame? Is it the child's fault that they actually lack the ability to engage in visual processing? They have deficits in this area? Or is it merely that they didn't understand exactly what you were asking them to do? They didn't understand the wording, so they don't know what they were supposed to do in quite the manner you expected them to do it. So that would be evidence of construct invalidity. The presence of language factors in this case basically confounded the measurement of visual processes. So that would be an example of basic construct invalidity, which can happen. But there's another type. And the other type is on the right-hand side here. Now in this case, you have a listening comprehension task. So basically, if I were to ask, after putting a blue block on top of a purple one, put the green block on the blue one. Now, that wording is more simple. Maybe a five or six-year-old should be able to get it. it. relies on a couple of prepositions, but simple ones, and the names of the colors. So not very difficult linguistically. If a child who's an English learner then performs on this task poorly, what is the interpretation? Well, the interpretation would be, obviously, their listening comprehension is poor. Yes, but the reality is the listening comprehension is poor only in English so far as you can tell. And that's really key because if you then say, well, the listening comprehension is poor, then that must mean they have a listening comprehension problem, some type of speech language deficit. That is incorrect. That is interpretive invalidity. You're ascribing an intrinsic, um, let's say, failure to what might be an extrinsic kind of concern or variable. And so the only way you would know whether listening comprehension is a problem is to follow up with some evaluation in the native language to see if that type of listening comprehension is also present in the native language. And this gets a bit tricky because of the issues that I mentioned before, the types of tools that we have may not necessarily provide you a fair comparison either. But it is arguable and you can say that, well, it is a valid measure of the child's listening comprehension abilities, let's say GC, in English. That you can say, but what you cannot say is that that must then represent a disability. To say that would be incorrect and would be wrong. So we're generally giving tests and we want to discuss the concept of comparability. And the assumption comparability is something that underlies all testing that we do, particularly standardized norm reference testing. And there's a wonderful quote that I've long used from Selvia and Eisledyk, um, that they wrote in their book on assessment back in 1991. And 
it really clarifies what this point is, okay? And what they're saying is that essentially, each child comes to school or grows up to become an adult with a particular set of experiences. And these experiences are in terms of education, social environment, language, culture, uh, related to ethnicity, all kinds of things. And then when we use a standardized test to measure their abilities in various aspects, basically, we have to assume that their experiences are similar. They don't have to be identical, but similar to the children on whom that test was normed and standardized. So that's what we, we call it. Now, we often think of this as a pattern of acculturation, but it's probably better to think of it as a pattern of acculturative knowledge acquisition. What have you learned during that time? And the reason I say acculturative knowledge acquisition versus acculturation, acculturation has a connotation related to identity. And people think, well, is it that I'm identifying with the mainstream or not identifying? How much? Can't I identify to both of them? Yes, you can. So it's not about that. It's about the acculturative knowledge acquisition. And how do I know this? And how do I know that's correct as well? When you continue and you examine the quote, they are talking about the child's general background experiences differing from the children on the test. So these background experiences, okay? And they say, if you don't have children that are comparable, then incorrect educational decisions or diagnostic decisions are likely to be made. And it's clear with the very last line there that when they say, or when they're talking about child's acculturation, they literally mean that they're talking about experiential background that differs, not simply that the child is of a different ethnic origin or necessarily identity. In other words, you have the same type of experiences. When I was seven years old sitting in second grade, my linguistic experiences were vastly different than other seven-year-old monolingual English speakers. I'd only been learning English for two years. I was instructed in a language that was not my native language. Neither of those things happened to children who were native English speakers. When I was at home, I was learning about Puerto Rican culture because when you have Puerto Rican parents, that's what they're going to teach you. They aren't going to teach you about American culture because frankly, they don't know American culture any more than they know English. So they were teaching me the language and the heritage and the culture that they knew. And that was Puerto Rican culture. So by the time I'm seven, even learning about the culture, I only knew two years worth of cultural knowledge by that point, not the seven years that my peers were getting. And so to compare us on tests that require that knowledge, on tests that, that are based on that type of development would have been erroneous and would have led to problems like this. Here's an example of a distribution. Let's say this is a distribution for native English speakers. And then we have two children who are English learners, Chesito and Panchito, and neither of them scored very well. Chesito's score is approximately ninth percentile. Panchito's score is at the first percentile. So invariably, they look like they have some intrinsic deficit. Something is really wrong. But this is not a true peer comparison group. This group does not meet the assumption of comparability that is necessary to, to derive a true diagnostic inference from their performance. So what we need is this, a different distribution, a distribution of English learners who share the same type of cultural linguistic background as well as education and other factors like Chesito and like Panchito to be able to compare them. And when we do that, what you see in terms of what happens is that suddenly Chesito scores about the 90, I'm sorry, uh, 46 percentile approximately. So it's about a 95, 96 standard score but Panchito still remains around the eighth or ninth percentile. So he's still way down there, um, you know, with the a score that would, would indicate 
a significant deficit. So in this case, only, only Panchito might truly be considered to have some type of deficit or disability here, but Chesito would not. Nobody would look at that score and say, well, there's a problem because the comparison here is fair. It provides the comparability that establishes a true peer comparison so that there is diagnostic validity to the decision that might be made. And we move on. I think it's important to recognize that race and ethnicity, as I mentioned earlier, does not necessarily establish comparability. All right, I, I have a nice quote here from uh, an article by Lohman and, and colleagues, and they talk about how most studies prior to maybe even five to 10 years ago, didn't even really classify children as English learners. Rather, they classified them by ethnic groups. So they were Hispanic children, they were African-American children, they were Asian Pacific Islanders. They, they, they weren't categorized by the fact that they spoke a different language. And notice that when you categorize individuals as English learners, they become a broader group because that encompasses all types of children from all manner and form of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. It's not just a circumscribed group, but it also then widens the issue with respect to what an English learner is because it implies somebody who is not a native English speaker. That is what becomes important rather than the race or ethnicity. And so they were calling for, you know, the need to basically separate the influence of ethnicity or race and ELL status on observed score differences. And this is what must be done when it comes to true peer relationships. If you're not taking this into account, then there is no way that you're, you're able to construct a true peer comparison that provides you with the um, interpretive validity that you're looking for. And a good example of this is again myself. By the time I was in 10 years old, I was 10 years old and in, in fifth grade, I, I had been learning English for approximately five years, you could say, from kindergarten. But there was another 10-year-old Puerto Rican kid in my classroom. He was the same age, 10. He was in the same grade, five. He was in the same school, which means he was in the same geographic location. He had the same SES as I did. His father was in the military, just like my family was. He was Puerto Rican, same race, ethnicity as I was. So virtually on every single stratification variable you can think of, we were matched. So does that mean that evaluating us provides comparability, that we are the same, so therefore how I perform is how he should perform or how he performs is how I should perform. Especially when I say that I had been learning English for five years, but he actually had just gotten here from Puerto Rico last year. So that meant he had been learning English one year and had received his prior education all in Spanish. I had no Spanish education. That means if you test us in English, I'm likely to do far better than he would do. But if you test us in the native language, he's likely to do far better than I would do because of my attrition and lack of education, due to lack of education in my native language. So we are not comparable, even though we are matched on every single possible variable that people could think of. Because the one variable we need to be matched on, which is language exposure, either in English or even in a native language, is not controlled in the norm sample. So the other thing that I think is important is to understand that the native language itself isn't going to establish comparability either. And in the example that I just gave, if we are evaluating in Spanish, you're more likely, more likely to get scores closer to true ability for the other child than you were for me. Because I, I may have been growing up speaking Spanish, 
but I didn't get educated in Spanish. There was no formal teaching going on. My parents also not very highly educated, so why would my development in Spanish language, particularly academic skills like reading and writing, why would they develop in, in Spanish without any instruction or without any models from my parents to be able to provide that? That's not what was going on. And so we again have to understand that it isn't the language or it isn't even uh, the specific language that matches children. It is the degree of difference between that child and that child's peers based on that development. So as I just explained, a child who is 10 years old in my class when I'm 10 years old, we both have same age, grade, SES, gender, um, geographic location, race, ethnicity. We have everything the same, but we're not the same because our, our language exposure is different. And it's different in both of those languages. So merely testing both of us in Spanish isn't going to really solve the issue. Merely testing both of us in English isn't necessarily gonna solve the issue unless we can establish true peer comparison because I and my experience cannot be equated or stand as a, let's say, normative basis for comparing the other child. We must have different peer groups to be able to do that. And so that's where I think the, the, um, the development of fairness in testing needed to go with English learners, that the concept of differential language exposure was more important than people had either understood or given it credit for. And uh, it, it's a variable that I think is, is difficult to understand. I'm going to try and explain it the best I can, but a lot of people I don't think really grasp it because we see it in a more simplistic manner by either dichotomizing it and saying, well, either it's verbal or nonverbal, which doesn't actually work, or it's, well, if you speak Spanish and that's your native language, then we test you in Spanish. And that doesn't work either. It is the differential language exposure that is most important. So English learners must be understood as not being a monolithic group. I mentioned that EL broadens the category when we talk about English learners because it can include individuals who are simply non-native English speakers. The category of ELLs co contains everyone who is not a monolingual native English speaker. Everybody else is an English learner. And that means that there's such variability in terms of all of the factors that we're really talking about. But the one that makes the difference is the, ex the exposure to the language in which you're evaluating the individual and their opportunity for learning that particular language and uh, developing the acculturative knowledge within that language or within the culture of that language. And so this is a wonderful quote here from Fisher and Fry. And I, I, I wish I had written this because it's beautiful. And, and they get to the heart of the matter that I'm talking about right here very clearly. And I, I'd like to read it for you here. It says, it is unlikely that a second grade English learner at the early intermediate phase of language development is going to have the same achievement profile as the native English speaking classmate sitting next to her. And I, I think it's important to understand what this means. It means that you, 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 can't, you can't expect a child in second grade, third grade to have the same abilities in things like reading, writing, and language development, right, as compared to their native English speaking peers in that same second or third grade, because they have not had that much time learning in English. 
And it's clear here, it says the norms established to measure fluency, for instance, I use fluency as an example, are not able to account for language development differences between the two girls. To me, they are the key words, language development differences. And what they're talking about, and they used fluency as an example, and I'll give you a fluency example. They didn't elaborate on that. But, you know, you're probably very um, fluent with things like the alphabet, things you overlearned when you were a child in elementary school. They made you say the alphabet so many times that if I say, please say the alphabet quickly, you have no trouble going A, B, C, D, F, G, H, J, K, L, M, O, P, right? Now, you think, oh, that means you're very fluent. Well, if I didn't have time to practice as much as you did, if I didn't even learn the alphabet until years after you did, then did I develop that same amount of fluency? Probably not, because by the time I'm in fourth grade, fifth grade, and now I've mastered the alphabet, we're not doing rehearsal and practice anymore. I'm not likely to have that. So for me, when you say, please say the alphabet quickly, I might not do it as well as you. In fact, for me, it would be as if I were to ask you to say the alphabet quickly, but do it backwards. Go ahead. Z-Y-X-O-U-T-U-V, I'll give you the startup. S-R-Q-P-O-N-M, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for the rest of you to catch up with me, right? You, you can't do it, why can't you do it? it? It's not that you lack fluency, well, it is that you lack fluency, but you have fluency in a direction and in only the direction in which you rehearsed it and practiced it, not in the direction that you don't have. And so that's the problem. If I didn't get a chance to even practice it forward, why should I have it? And it's not just about the alphabet. What about numbers and counting? counting to 10 quickly, counting by twos, counting by fives, counting by tens, things you can do quite readily, quite easily. But if I say count backwards uh, from 100 by sevens, go. 93, I'll give you the first one. 86, you see how slow you suddenly become. It, it's not that you have all this automatic fluency. You have the fluency only in the ways that you practiced and rehearsed what you did. But an English learner doesn't have always that same level of opportunity to be able to master the fluency like you did. And that creates the difference. And of course, in here in the quote, they end it with a second analysis students progress compared to linguistically similar students is warranted. And that what that is what must be done. If we're going to get a valid measure of whether or not you truly are fluent in a particular language, then I must compare you to others who have the same level or similar level of development in that language as you have. And you see how it's tricky because ordinarily age takes care of that for us. For a monolingual English speaker, age is a perfect, perfect control variable for language development differences. Because we assume, don't we, that a child growing up has some adult that is raising them and that that adult is speaking to them in some language. So there's some development that is occurring. We're not talking about feral children or children raised by wolves or in caves or you know, by themselves and in closets. We're talking about children who have social interaction and language as a fundamental part of that. So if you're seven years old and you have a parent and that parent speaks English, you've been learning English for seven years. Now, some people say, well, well what about if you have one parent speaks one language and the other one speaks the other language? Well, then you're, you're you're splitting time between the two languages. Are you a monolingual speaker at that point? No. So in essence, you're more like an English learner. However, you have an advantage of having heard at least some English and some other language from birth, which means you've split your time between the two. So by the time you're five years old, you have about two and a half years of development in, in, in each one. The nice thing though, is that as you get older, you begin to connect those two and transfer between them, something that a bilingual or an English learner who doesn't learn from birth can't do because 
they're not getting sufficient early exposure to be able to make that connection. They don't develop the kind of cognitive academic language proficiency required to make that transfer. So learning two languages simultaneously from the beginning, wonderful, no problem at all. But that's not the typical ELL that we run across. And again, it's still important to make sure that we compare individuals with the same level of language exposure. So unfortunately, um, this concept has either been misunderstood, ignored, um, not identified, I don't know, but the, the historical literature is really, you know, replete with studies that look at things from a verbal versus nonverbal kind of approach. And, and that really is a false dichotomy. Not all tests require the same amount of language and not all tests remove the same amount of language or culture. They're, they're variable. It's more of a linear proportional kind of effect. Likewise, ELLs don't perform at the same level on all nonverbal tests. So it's not like, oh, their score should be exactly the same on all of those and then perform the same as they do on all verbal tests. There's variability within their performance, even among those groups. And finally, excuse me, we should really then look at test performance for English learners as a continuum formed by a proportional attenuation of performance related to how much language and a culture of knowledge is required in a particular subtest or test that we're giving to the individual. And this is what I think has been missing, but it's always been there. It's not that this is something that should be new. It's always been in the information. In fact, you can see it quite readily. If I just create a simple linear pattern from low to high and I look at the test performance of English learners, okay, then what I see is essentially this. Tests that require little age-based knowledge or uh, cultural acquisition and language development are those tests in which English learners perform close to the mean, near 100. But on those tests that require a great deal of language, age expected levels of development in language and age expected levels of cultural knowledge, those performances for ELLs on those types of tests are much lower, frequently going to about a standard deviation to a standard deviation and a third lower, up to 20 points. So the other tests kind of fall in between. And how do we know that they actually do fall in between? Well, it's actually fairly easy to examine because we can look at various studies that show us whether or not there are differences in performance. And this is a great example of a contemporary uh, study that really emphasizes how important possession of age-appropriate language ability truly is in the performance of a given test. And this is a, a study done by um, Kim McGrew and his student Dan uh, Cormier and, and Jim Isaac as well. And what they did here was to independently operationalize language and then use that to predict how much variance was explained on each of the subtests of the WJ. Uh, is it WJ4? Or it might be WJ3. I don't recall. Uh, anyway, here are the subtests listed, and here's the amount of variance listed for you in terms of how much was explained by language operationalized independently. And the pattern is not random. If you look at it, verbal comprehension gets explained the most by language in terms of almost 79 to 80% of the variance. That is quite high. That is remarkable. So that means that verbal comprehension, not surprisingly, requires a lot of language ability, age-appropriate language ability. 
But as you go down the list, general information, that's a culture of the knowledge. Concept formation, that's more fluid reasoning task, except that the instructions for that one are very linguistically demanding, requiring the child to use conjunctions like and and or correctly. So there's a lot of language there. Visual auditory learning, and you go down the list, you start to see that they become less language oriented. By the time you get to the very bottom, you can see spatial relations, planning, picture recall, tests that really don't require much language at all. And so what that means is that this list, in terms of the order of the variance explained, goes from highest language demands to the lowest language demands. And that language accounts for more and more of the variance, the higher the test demands in terms of language, in terms of age expected development in that language. But it can be virtually zero by the time you get down to tests that don't require that. So it isn't a simple dichotomy. You can't draw a line through this and say, hey, here you go. This is verbal and this is nonverbal. You really have to say it is a linear kind of effect. And you see it for 7 to 10-year-olds, 11 to 14, 15 to 18, although the 11 to 14 pattern is a little bit different than the 7 to 10 to 15 to 18. And they did not discuss why that might have occurred. I'm not really sure myself. The only thing I ever usually say is maybe that's hormones. I don't know, teenagers. But the nice thing is that by the time teenagers get a little bit older, they seem to come back to their senses and they look like they did when they were seven to 10, so much more closely there. But the pattern is very, very consistent across the age ranges and from top to bottom, that different levels of language provide different levels of uh, explanation and accounting for variance uh, depending upon the nature of each of the tests. So you could easily, if you wanted to, just, you know, create sections here and say, here's very high language, here's moderate, here's low language, here's very low language, and so on. It's really quite simple. Now, I did some work earlier where I looked at the actual values in the subtests and the performance and said, well, do we see a similar kind of pattern of decline? So this was preceding the study that I just showed you, but it really is reinforcing what we have seen already. If you look on the left side here, the subtest names are all in order, information, vocabulary, similarities, comprehension, in a particular order, but that order is not random either. High language, from the very top down to low language, like coding, picture completion, object assembly, and so on. And then here are four different studies, starting with Jane Mercer's work with the Sampa back in 1972, Diana Vukovic and Richard Figueroa's uh, follow-up to that study. They took a subsample of about 400 kids from the 900 that Jane had in her sample, followed them for 10 years, and here are the scores they got. And what's interesting about it is you notice that because their English proficiency went up, obviously over the 10-year period, their performance right, went up, but the pattern stayed much the same. It didn't really change it a whole lot. And then when you look at the third group here, this is um, ESL, actually, I believe it was primarily a uh, French English immersion students in Canada. So they're not even in the US, so they lack some cultural knowledge. So their scores tended to be lower, but look at the pattern again. Right? And then finally, uh, one of my former students for dissertation did work on Long Island with a group of Spanish-speaking uh, bilinguals. And again, look at the pattern, very consistent with like Jane's work. And so what you see is that when tests like information, vocabulary, similarities, rely on cultural knowledge and language, the performance tends to be the lowest. But when you move to tests like picture completion, coding, or object assembly, which have less language demands, less cultural knowledge built in, then the performance is much higher.
And what I did also to give you an idea of how this could be used, at least to guide what we're talking about in a very straightforward way, is notice that if you convert all of these scale scores into deviation IQ metric and then take a grand mean, you see that the mean for information is approximately one standard deviation below the mean, a score of 85, whereas the mean for coding is closest to the mean, normative mean of 100. So there you have it in terms of being able to say, this is what we see, this is what we expect when we look at tests that are arranged from high language expectations and demands in terms of development to low language expectations and development. The pattern of performance is not merely dichotomous, it actually varies from very, very low, standard deviation or more away from the mean, to being right at the mean. And this, I think, is a nice way of looking at it because instead of just looking at the values, you actually can look at the, the decline of the scores from left to right in the same order and how, how it really displays a pretty ubiquitous and robust kind of slope. It doesn't change a whole lot. This is typically what you see. Again, if you review the entire literature, you look at the subtests that are, are reported, uh, particularly from studies where individuals are not referred and are not disabled. Obviously, we don't want to look at performance based on groups of children who might have disabilities because that could, could change the normative standard anyway. So when you have normal ELLs, this is what you get. And it's very consistent, it's very robust, it is something that really begins to speak toward the differential pattern, the proportional attenuation of performance based on differences in language exposure and language development. Now, there were two additional studies that, that really took this to task and said, okay, if language proficiency is really that important, then why don't we just look at language and its effect directly on test performance? And this is an example of that. And this was um, uh, published by a colleague of mine. I actually mentored her dissertation. We published this later on. And it shows the performance on seven of the um, subtests from the WJ3, starting with on the left spatial relations, then visual matching, um, uh, numbers reversed, sound blending, visual auditory learning, concept formation, the one I told you with the language, and verbal comprehension. So they are, are, they are arranged primarily in order of how much language is really required in each one of them. So on the left side, low language, on the right side, high language. Well, if you're at the proficient level, according to the New York State English as a Second Language Achievement Test, and this is a test like the WIDA, the CELT, the LPAT, um, that people and states generally use for like Title III compliance to measure general proficiency. So what do you get? Well, with the, the kids scoring at the highest proficiency group, you get very little decline. I mean, they only really drop toward the very end when language is very high, and even then they're in the average range. So there's not much of a decline once they've reached that level of proficiency. But what about if they're only at the advanced level, which is a misnomer, because at that point, they really begin to drop significantly, almost down to about 82 in GC. The intermediate drops even further, and the beginning group drops even further than that. There's a widespread difference in their abilities. And I think this begins to indicate that this is, this is language that's happening here, because we are measuring language proficiency and allowing it to vary, and that's precisely what we see in terms of what's going on here. Now, here's another example. This one was with the Woodcock-Munoz Language Survey revised and the Wexler abbreviated scales of intelligence. So using the Woodcock-Munoz Language Survey to group children into low, intermediate, and high proficiency, here's what you get. And when you measure their abilities according to, again, less language, 
on the right-hand side, more language, uh, I'm on the left-hand side, more language on the right-hand side. So matrix reasoning, block design, letter word ID, uh, all the way up to similarities vocabulary, picture vocabulary, and so on. What do you get? Well, again, very little decline for the children with the highest proficiency levels, more of a decline for children with the intermediate proficiency level, and a very stark decline for children who have a very low proficiency level. So clearly, language exposure, language proficiency in this case, but as a proxy for language exposure, is playing a role in how ELLs perform, which means that it would be then inappropriate to group all ELLs together without consideration for how much exposure and development they have in language, Otherwise, we would get a discriminatory kind of result. So it was on this basis that recently um, embarked on an effort to try and see if this could actually be something that could be incorporated into test design and construction. And so rather than use the old kinds of ideas where we're going to create a nonverbal test or we're going to do a native language test, there were some new types of decisions made and considerations that were put out there, particularly in light of what the standards were sort of um, addressing. One of the concepts in the standards is universal design. Can we create tests that are as universally applicable as much as possible. Now, that's not always going to be possible, but we can do that. And in light of that and these considerations, um, it is perhaps attainable. It is something you can do. It is the concept of fairness and being able to achieve it is something that can be done. So for example, think of, of these considerations. In the US, we know that the focus is primarily on English language acquisition and academic skills, particularly for school-aged children. Anyone who comes to the US and is in school is required to learn English. And I don't have a problem with them having to learn English. I have a problem sometimes with the way we help them learn English, but I don't have a problem with them having to learn English. So that means nobody in the US remains monolingual, so to speak, okay? And English is the accountability standard that all states, districts, agencies have to really comply with. Now, the other thing, we know that English language acquisition, unlike nonverbal abilities, are really highly related to academic success, highly related. Okay, nothing more important than GC or language and cultural knowledge in the development of academic success, particularly areas like reading and writing, which are symbolic aspects of language to begin with. Number two, English can serve, if we think about it, as a common metric for measurement because one thing that all English learners in the United States, not necessarily in other countries, but in the United States, that they have in common is that they're all learning English. So irrespective of their native language, English is a process that they begin the moment they arrive here and the moment they begin to learn English. Number four here, receptive vocabulary then is something that we can measure immediately in the acquisition process. That's something ideal because we don't have to wait. I can determine that you have absolutely no receptive vocabulary in English. I can determine that you have a very, very, very limited vocabulary, receptive vocabulary in English. But if I wanna measure your expressive vocabulary, that's gonna take more time because I have to let you develop it first. You might not have any words until you know, four months or so. You might not have much expressive language you know, from anywhere between four months to a year. And so the, you know, the silent period, the pre-production phase could last uh, up to a year. So I would have to wait a much longer period of time to be able to evaluate you in that case. And then you know, how much development you've, you've acquired during that period of time would be related to other kinds of factors. But it, it doesn't make it as amenable to measurement as does receptive vocabulary. Number five, exposure to English is quantifiable. That's something we can do and it addresses opportunity to learn. We know and can determine to a certain extent when a person began to formally learn and be exposed to English. 
Uh, number six, testing in English eliminates the need for multiple language specific versions of a test. This is a very important practical consideration because there are never going to be 350 different versions of the same test. It's just not going to happen. Once you get beyond Spanish, there's limited availability already there, even though we have many, many other languages for which there's tremendous need. And finally, testing in English eliminates the need for the evaluator to actually be bilingual. It's an important consideration because there are very few bilingual uh, professionals who are competent and qualified to conduct evaluations in the native language. So that means that the majority of English learners in the US will invariably be evaluated by people who do not speak their language, who do not understand their language, who are not bilingual themselves and cannot communicate with them in that manner or provide any evaluation in that language. So that's problematic. But based on that, that means we can begin a process by thinking if we test in English, we might be able to use that as the common standard and eliminate all of the difficulties that we've had before. However, there are some assumptions. One, we'd have to make sure that language does explain variance above and beyond race and ethnicity. So that would have to be demonstrated. And number two, that English language acquisition remains invariant regardless of the child's first language. So, we tried to accomplish that task in a project that was recently completed in the development of a test called the Ortiz PVAT. Here are the two norm samples from that particular test. On the left, the typical one for English speakers. On the right, English learners. And everything looks the same except for when you get down to race and ethnicity. For English speakers, that was a controlled stratification variable. It's there. But for English learners, it's not there. And the question is, does it need to be there? And the answer, as you're going to see, is no. What needs to be there is what's listed there that is not listed in the other one. And that is language spoken at home. All right. There were 53 different languages spoken and sampled in the English learner sample and proportion of lifetime exposure to English. There were 11 categories developed from zero to six months up to 16 plus years. Um, there were ways of measuring it all the way down to, to one month if the person has only been learning English for, for less than a year as well. Now, what were the results of creating norm samples based on school-aged children like this with these variables? Well, here's part of what you see. The, the development was based on continuous norms, and this graphic doesn't provide continuous norm kind of idea. It really just shows groups. So if you were to take a group of you know, native English speakers and plot them, well, that you can do because they don't vary in terms of uh, exposure. They vary in terms of age, which controls for exposure. But for English learners, you, you have to vary exposure. And so that's why there are lines that are going up and down. But the problem is you can't do it continuously from 0% exposure to 99% exposure. So instead, we kind of group them. We group them into high exposure from 51 to 100% lifetime exposure, moderate from 11 to 50, and then low from 0 to 10%. And then create an average line for those groups and this is what you see nice beautiful parallel lines that move from left to right in terms of age so that as age increases English language development receptive vocabulary that is actually increases but also increases along the y-axis from bottom to top that the higher your exposure is all the way up to native the better your performance is as well and that begins to show that age and exposure must be used in conjunction to develop true peer comparison groups. And how well does it actually represent that? Here's a good example here. If you compare monolingual English speakers to monolingual English speakers, the average monolingual English speaker, all right, that's the blue line right here, the blue bar, I should say, on the left-hand side, you get a score of 100. Well, that's average. We all know that's what it is. But if you compare the children who are in the high exposure group to native English speakers, their score is only 94. 
it's already dropped by a third of a standard deviation. If you compare the medium exposure group, it's 90. It's two-thirds of a standard deviation below the mean. And if you compare the low exposure group, you see that they're at 86. They're almost one full standard deviation below the mean compared to monolingual English speakers. And that creates a problem because these scores then do not have diagnostic validity. And using them would be inappropriate other than for the purposes of being able to determine instructional level and need. But in terms of reporting them and using them for diagnostic purposes, that would be a mistake. The numbers that should be provided are the ones over on the right-hand side. When you compare children or the average child in the high exposure group, their score is 100. The average performance for the uh, medium exposure group is 102. The average performance for the low exposure group is 100.2 those are the scores that retain the diagnostic validity necessary to be able to say there's a deficit or there is no deficit. And you can see that not only can you create a norm sample that provides this, you can also demonstrate that race and ethnicity really aren't the driving influences on a particular test. For the English speaking group, Examination of the differences between the performance among African-American, Hispanics, whites, Caucasians, uh, and other groups, pairwise comparisons show basically no significant difference between their performance. I mean, even the, the effect size is 0 0.005 is so small, even an, an effect, or I'm sorry, even an effect that was significant would be so small as to be probably meaningless. And this is on a language-based test. You see how different this is from what has been done before, where we use nonverbal tests to try to reduce these, these racial differences. It doesn't have to be a nonverbal test to reduce them. We can do it with language as well. And beyond that, what about the other assumption of the invariance of learning English? What we find there as well is that no matter the first language that an individual is learning, the process of learning English is invariant and stays the same. And I think that's remarkable because it means then that English learners don't need to be treated as if the language that they speak specifically is the problem. So it's not about sampling all of the languages, although we did our best to be, uh, you know, uh, representative as much as possible. The actual language that a person speaks first and then is now learning English does not affect their acquisition of English. It is an invariant process. It does operate the same regardless of the language that the person tends to speak. And both of these then are really powerful indicators of fairness, the types of fairness that can set a standard for where testing can go. Because as I've explained, where we've been before hasn't really produced the types of results or the attention to the issue of validity that we would expect or which is now currently specified in the standards. I believe that this type of direction is something that can really elevate what is being done when it comes to working with English learners in ways that we've not been able to accomplish before. Fairness isn't something that needs to be terribly complicated, but it is something that requires a great deal of attention and a great deal of time. These issues, by the way, were resolved over the course of about seven and a half years of development. It wasn't something that you know just happened and just said, oh, here how e here's how easy it is to do it. I recognize the complexity of it, but I think it is what offers us the ability to be able to move forward. So in, in summary, true peer group comparison is the only way that we're going to provide any kind of foundation for fairness and interpretive validity when we're doing diagnostic evaluations of English learners. It, it isn't going to happen by using any specific procedure, any specific tool, any specific 
kind of approach or idea. It has to be done in a way that we say that the individual against whom we're comparing um, the examinee, right, the individuals uh, um, in that norm sample and that, that group are true peers based on the amount of exposure that an individual has in that language. And this, again, applicable to English learners, obviously, but that's what's important when we're working with ELs. And construct validity must be understood then to be something that does not guarantee diagnostic or interpretive validity. Just because we say that the test is supposed to measure something doesn't mean it always will, and even when it does, does not extend into diagnostic validity unless we can demonstrate that it's a true peer comparison. The developmental differences that uh, I've been speaking about are not controlled by things like race or ethnicity. Not well or at all possibly, you know, as I've just kind of demonstrated. Cultural knowledge and language development are related to how much time you've been able to learn them, how much time you've had to be able to acquire that information. And if there's differences in the opportunity for learning and the amount of exposure, then those differences must be controlled. Otherwise, comparisons will be inherently unfair. Um, what else? I think finally, it is, you know, the beginning of something that maybe is unfamiliar to everyone, but if we don't use norms, if we don't have tests that have these types of uh, true peer comparisons, then we have very little way of being able to determine whether our results are fair or not. It, it's simply something that, that must be attended to in order to control for those kinds of differences because as we move toward um, aspiring to what the standards expect, I should say, or uh, require, we have to then be able to say that the comparison meets those particular standards by demonstrating that the validity has not been compromised, not in terms of the construct being measured and not in terms of the interpretation that we are providing. And if we do that, I think there's a whole new world out there that we're probably going to move toward. And I don't think it's impossible or difficult to do. And I've given you just one example of how it can be done. So I believe I'm pretty much done here. I know that Jessica will probably pop back in and will start feeding me some questions. So I'd be happy to use the remaining time to answer whatever questions I can. Thank you very much, Dr. Ortiz. So if you have questions for Dr. Ortiz, you may enter those or copy those into the chat box. Uh, while we wait a moment to see what kinds of questions we have, I will mention that if you uh, uh, requested to receive a continuing education credit for this webinar, um, I will be sending to you a link for an evaluation um, at, the, uh, at the conclusion, and I'll need you to complete that evaluation in order to um, send you your uh, uh, certificate. So please uh, be looking out for that. If you haven't re uh, requested continuing education credit, uh, we still would like to have your feedback on our programming. Um, it's very helpful for us as we continue to move forward and try to improve uh, the professional development programming that we provide here from Burroughs. Um, so we'll give that some time. It's one of the things that um, it's difficult to tell from this if, if someone's typing or entering something. So we'll give just a little bit of time. Well, you know, Jessica, I might have been just so completely thorough that nobody has any questions. That's now. possible. It, it happens <laughs> I, to me I all can't the time. Really. <laughs>
Just kidding. I'd be surprised if that was the case. <laughs> I would be. Too. I think it's compelling enough. I would be surprised if there wouldn't be someone who'd want to ask no. about it. I think I tend to raise more questions uh, <laughs> than I provide answers sometimes. So uh, I'm sure there's much out there. Um, you know, I will also mention at this time, um, as I mentioned, this is a second in a series of webinars that uh, we are hosting and our next one will be also featuring a school psychologist on May 11th, um, Friday, May 11th, that's Ryan Kettler from Rutgers University, and he will be talking about the testing of individuals with disabilities. Um, and some of his research and practice in that area. So if you have not registered for that, uh, please join us. Or if you know of a colleague who would be interested, um, please ask them to do that as well. So I still don't have anything at this point, but I do want to give, oh yeah, no, we do have one. Um, so how many school districts currently use the Ortiz PVAT? Oh, um you know, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, let me explain that it actually only became available in January. So it's been out, what, February, March, April, three months. Um, but from what I understand, it has been quite popular uh, across the U.S. Uh, in fact, for, to give you an example, I've been traveling once a week, twice a week for uh, probably the last seven months uh, doing presentations and so on. And I'll be going to California next week. I'll do four presentations there in Southern California alone. So I know it has been adopted, you know, pretty widely for a brand new test, but primarily because it addresses, you know, big needs for ELLs. And one of the nice things, I, I was only talking about diagnostic validity here, that the test itself actually does um, address issues related to things like progress monitoring, growth, um, intervention, and instructional level and need. So it, it, you know, ELLs don't create just a problem when it comes to testing. They create a problem that's more broad-based. And so the test responds to that, and I think there's been uh, really a lot of excitement and current adoption. So I, I don't know the specific numbers, um, but I know that, that it's doing very well in terms of what people need because it addresses, obviously, you know, a big need here. Yeah, and I'll also mention that um, at Burroughs here, uh, we also published the Mental Measurement Yearbook series, and we have received the test for uh, reviewing for that series. So we also will be having some reviews for that in the near future. Uh, so a second question is, um, the medium exposure group has a higher mean score than the high exposure group for the test developed by Dr. Ortiz. I'm just wondering why. And you could maybe go back to that screen if that'd be helpful. Okay, let me, let me backspace. Um, which one are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. You're probably talking about this one here. Right? I uh, yeah, they, I bet they're that, referring I bet to like the green it. one right there. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> it it's 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 a good question. The um, it's a sampling issue here because we grouped the individuals from uh, as you can see from 11 to 50 percent. So in that group, okay, the average score isn't really the average of what that group should get. So in other words, they shouldn't equate to 100 for each of them. It's just that there were higher scores within that group than there were within the other groups in terms of what their average was. So it's a way that it's partitioned. And this actually would never happen because the test doesn't use group. 
In other words, you would never be comparing an individual to a group with medium exposure. You would only compare that individual to other individuals with the same amount of exposure as determined by the question. So if it was determined, like I said, in my case, I had you know, approximately 50% lifetime exposure by the time I was 10 years old, then I would only be compared to other individuals who have 50% lifetime exposure. And in that continuous norming process, the average score for any one of those percentages would actually be anchored at 100. So this is just a, a reflection of the way that the groupings were made. And so that's why they ended up just a little bit higher there. All right, very good. And I do, we do have a request for your contact information that they want to pass along to their special ed and ELL directors in their district, which we do have an email uh, address for Dr. Ortiz at the end of the webinar um, that I will provide you. And yes, please feel free to reach out to him for any kind of needs or kind of consultation that you might have. And, and I, I will, I will I'll preface that by saying I will do my absolute best to respond to any request. <laughs> but I, I have had three, just three emails in my life. Okay. And they've all sort of the first two piled into this one. I, I receive hundreds of emails a day that I can't possibly keep up with, but I do have some assistance. I do try and filter them. And I do go through them. So if it's a legit email from someone, you know, asking about a question or uh, having some concern, needing more information, generally I will find it and generally I will get back to you. But if you, if you don't hear back from me after a week or two, please feel free to stalk me and go ahead and repeat. <laughs> Um, I will not mind because I know that I can be difficult to get a hold of. So feel free to repeat that email if you need to put it in bold caps or something, and I'm sure it will get my attention. Yeah, and Sam, if you would like to advance the slides, we'll go ahead and go to that last one because I'll also speak a bit about um, some of the other... Uh, I think we did. Did I add that to it? Where? Yeah, there it is. I did. Um, yeah, so I'll also just as we wait to make sure there's not some additional questions, I, I wanted to point out that we do actually originally we had a five part series. We are going to add a sixth presentation to the series. Um, it'll probably be sometime this fall. But as I mentioned, we have Ryan Kettler coming up on Friday, May 11th. But then we also will be having two clinical counseling psychologists talk about um, some ethnic and cultural considerations with testing. Um, that are very insightful as well. And then what we'll add in the fall is from Willie Solano Flores, also a language specialist in educational measurement, who will talk about some methodological alternatives for looking at test fairness on tests. And as you can see on this slide, we do have the contact information for myself and Dr. Ortiz. Uh, so if you uh, would like to follow up with either one of us, and as I mentioned, I will be sending um, uh, copies of his PowerPoint slides to you and we are recording this and it will be available on our video library if there are people that you think would be interested and um, weren't able to attend at the time today but still would like to know about it. I know I've had several requests already of people who couldn't attend but they do want to know more about the topic. All right well I don't it does not appear that we have any more questions at this point so Dr. Ortiz thank you so much for your informative presentation today I think it probably was very insightful. I know it's insightful for me I've heard you several times and every time I hear something new that's very um, helpful for me as I work as a testing uh, measurement uh, specialist so thank you for your time and thank you too for the audience and um, supporting our programming hope you all have a very good day
Thank you very much, Jessica, and thank you, everybody. Thanks.